Ephesians chapter 2, verses um, 12, excuse me, to 22. And um, in the um, Tree of Life Bible, I think it's actually 11 to 22, if you have one of those. So, And um, because that's what I'm reading from, that's why I'm wearing my glasses. Um, okay. Therefore, keep in mind that once you... Gentiles in the flesh were called on circumcision by those called circumcision, which is performed on flesh by hand. At that time, you were separate from Messiah, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he is our shalom, the one who made the two into one and broke down the middle wall of separation. Within his flesh, he made powerless the hostility. The law code of mitzvot contained in regulations. He did this in order to create within himself, one new man from two groups, making shalom, and to reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. And he came and proclaimed shalom to you who were far away, and shalom to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by the same Ruach. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with God, with God's people, and members of God's household. You have been built on the foundation made up of the emissaries and prophets, with Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple for the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into God's dwelling place in the Ruach. Some of you who know our family story, the Urbach family story, uh, will know that uh, my folks came to know Yeshua in the 50s, which means that... um, I was raised in a believing household, which also means that I was essentially raised in the church, and um, for the better part of 35 years, and in the 70s, as the Messianic uh, Jewish movement um, came into being, obviously the... uh, more current incarnation of it since the Messianic Jewish movement goes back to Messiah, right? Um, I began to feel somewhat restless, uh, a bit like a um, square peg in a round hole. And um, at some point we began uh, the first Messianic Jewish congregation uh, in Denver. That was in 1980. 
And uh, for the first time, I really felt like I belonged somewhere. Uh, I had a kind of feeling like I... Um, um, you, you know what it's like wh when you wear a comfortable slipper, not something you have to force yourself into. And um, <laughs> and part of the process was seeing um, just how I fit with other people, with folks in the Jewish community, and. Uh, you know, this identity thing is really big when you come to think of it. Regardless of what size, side of the spectrum you come from, whether you come from the Jewish side, whether you come from the Gentile side. And for us who are, who are Jews, um, the identity issue looks a little different. I mean, the essence is the same, but it, it looks a little different because for us a big issue was how do I relate to my people? Um, am I truly a Jew? And uh, especially when the uh, feedback that you get from the Jewish community often has been one of rejection. There's something defective in you. In other words, if you had only studied uh, Judaism, if you had only learned about the Shabbat properly and uh, and so on, you would not be believing this stuff. Um, and furthermore, if you are out propagating uh, your beliefs, you're worse than Hitler. Because Hitler was, uh, Hitler tried to kill us physically, and you're trying to do that spiritually. So there's this angst where a lot of us, especially in the beginning, didn't feel just uh, like the fit, uh, the fit was good within our community as Messianic Jews, but we struggled. And over a period of time, as you can imagine, you go back and forth and back and forth over it, and God brings you to a place of comfort, not so much in how people see you, but a place of comfort in him. And, um, and I realize, and I've seen a lot of this on the Gentile end over and over and over again, uh, where folks who were from a non-Jewish background came into the Messianic Jewish community and uh, struggled to find their identity. And on the really negative end of the spectrum, we had um, entire messianic congregations converting to Judaism while being believers in Yeshua. Now, I've never been able to wrap my head around that, and I never will, um, because to me it basically speaks about a basic lack of security in a person's identity. Uh, regardless of the reasons people give, and so that's one of the ways people try to deal with it. Then, of course, you have the so-called two-house or the Ephraimite movement that seems to put a person 
into a uh, transducer and as Gentiles, and out they come as Ephraimites from the um, ten tribes of Israel. An interesting process. I've also never been able to get my arms around. Um, and then from time to time, we, we see folks who come into Yeshuat Zion out of a, a non-Jewish background who also struggle with how do I fit and and am I supposed to know anything and everything there is to know about Judaism? And am I supposed to practice every single um, item of the Shabbat and every single item of the observance, the holidays, and so forth in order for me to really fit properly? And the answer is, of course, no. Because um, whether you do or you don't, doesn't define who you are. And this is something where I want to begin today is a basic conviction that none of us is chopped liver. Chopped liver, by the way, as you can imagine, is a Jewish expression from the days when people would cook a chicken and then not quite sure what to do with the gizzards and then say, well, okay, we'll take and we'll cook those and uh, give those as a side dish. So what am I, chopped liver, meaning I'm a side dish? You're not. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, if God brings you and joins your heart with us, then you are part of the mishpacha, whether you're Jewish or you're, you're Gentile. And uh, the Word of God expects all of us to view ourselves, as Paul puts it this way, um, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly <clears throat> than you ought. In other words, don't think of yourself as up here or don't think of yourself down here, but rather think of yourself with sober, <clears throat> sober judgment. Um, here's a little Greek for you, sophroneo. Um, I know that uh, sober judgment doesn't sound very appetizing um, because there are times you want to be wild and crazy and out of the box and all of this, but the Word of God simply wants us to have a balanced perspective of who we are, who God made us, and be able to say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, whether as Jewish or Gentile, man or woman, whoever I am. Um, that's a beginning point because without that we are not properly anchored we're not properly balanced we're not um, in a good place for ourselves or for anybody else and uh, another scripture puts it this way God did not give us a spirit of timidity but of power of love and self-discipline here is that same word Sophroneo, meaning you don't think of yourself as high and mighty and you don't think of yourself as lower than, than dirt. Neither one of those is acceptable. Because when somebody looks at you <clears throat> and asks you who you are, I would hope that your go-to response is, I am a son of God or I'm a daughter of God. God's servant that that is the beginning point 
from which everything else proceeds, folks. Because without that, we're up and down, side to side, back and forth. And that is why, by the way, when you see the Pauline epistles, you see that Paul typically begins with a big chunk, the biggest chunk in the beginning, um, addressing the issue of who is God. Now, remember that in most of these places, Paul spent a bunch of time explaining to people who God is. But we have to be reminded because we forget. Because the Lord gets squeezed out of the picture and our focus is, of course, on us or somebody else. And the letter to the Ephesians is one of those incredible letters that I would encourage you to read over and over and over again because it gives you this unbelievable panorama. It's sort of like, you know, when you uh, take an airplane trip and and you come in from the flat plains of Missouri or Kansas and or or you come from California or someplace else and you see the mountains laid out and you go, wow, it takes your breath away. And that's what Paul does here in the beginning chapters of Ephesians. He lays out to us the magnificence of who God is and because of that, who we are in him. And so he is speaking to a bunch of people, predominantly Gentiles, who had absolutely no clue about any of that. If you know anything about Greek or Roman mythology, you know that for the Greeks and Romans, uh, the god were sort of uh, overgrown, spoiled, capricious children who would get up in the morning, they would have a bad hair day, and then they would decide to take it out on the poor folks down below. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of times, that's how we view God. You know, that the Lord has nothing better to do than he looks down at us when we're having a good time and say, cut it out. Uh, You have to suffer. Yeah. And so for them, the notion of a loving, personal God who is deeply engaged with them was not something that they could get their arms around. And that is why Paul spends the first chapter talking about who the Lord is. And folks, let me encourage you to, again, to read and reread these verses, especially when you're feeling two cents Chinese money. Um, because the challenge at that point is not to have to have wonderful self-talk. I'm the greatest. I'm wonderful. I'm stupendous. I can do this, that, and the other. But rather, look at who God is. Worship him. And based on that reality, then you see yourself in the proper kind of perspective. And so Paul begins by giving them a fairly grim picture in this passage that Biggs read to us that frankly fits... I would say everybody in this room, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, because it describes the situation of darkness, spiritual darkness we were all in. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Messiah, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. 
Now again, the language that Paul uses here can be uh, applied to the British Commonwealth, and I'll use that picture loosely. Remember that any picture in Scripture um, conveys a couple of basic ideas, but you can't milk it for all it's worth, okay? So the British Commonwealth uh, has the the queen or the king and the uh, local citizens and then the people who are from the colonies who are also part of the Commonwealth. And that's somewhat the kind of picture that we can see here that Paul is describing uh, about the God of Israel, the people of Israel, and then the, the folks who are who have been brought in to be part of that. But part of the picture we have to remember in the first century when Paul is writing to these folks is that there was alienation and spiritual darkness for the the Gentiles in Ephesus. Remember, go back to uh, the book of Acts and read the story of how the good news of Yeshua came to Ephesus and see that Ephesus was one of the worst possible places to live um, because of spiritual darkness. There was occult, occultic practices. There was the worship of Diana. Um, all kinds of awful things that took place there. And, of course, part of the picture is that there was separation between Gentiles and Jews. Um, the idol worship. Idol worshippers despised the Jews. Why? Because they considered Jewish people to be atheists. Now, I know that sounds a little strange. Why atheists? Because they only believed in one God. Everybody else believed in God of this, that, and the other. Uh, the Jews, of course, despised the pagans because they were considered unclean. If you were to come into the house of a Gentile, in the first century, you would be instantly considered to be ritually unclean because they were ritually unclean, and if you were to come in, you would become unclean, which would mean you would not be able to go to the temple and worship God. It was big stuff. Um, and yet, remember, in the midst of all of that, the darkness and hostility, God was at work. Remember some of the greatest things that happened in the New Testament times in the first century took place in Ephesus. And God was always able to show his chesed to people in darkness, even to the Canaanites that were under God's severe judgment. Even to them, here you have Rahab who's considered one of the Basically, the mothers in faith, this Canaanite prostitute, is right up there with Father Abraham. Why? Because God, God's power somehow came upon her and was able to draw her out of that culture of darkness. Um, but the overall picture was pretty grim. And Paul is reminding the Ephesian believers who were primarily Gentiles of, of what was reality. And he talks about the fact in, in verse 14, if you would look with me, um, he, te he, he tells them 
that Messiah is their shalom, their peace, the one who made the two into one and broke down the middle wall of separation. Now, you may be aware of the fact that in, in the temple, there was uh, the temple precincts were divided into several areas. You had the court of the priest, which is where they had the, um, the altar, the court of Israelites, the court of the women, and there was the, um, uh, the court of the Gentiles, which was actually the bigger section of the temple precincts. And there was a, uh, there was a wall with gates separating each of these courts. And, and on the court of the Gentiles, there was a, an inscription saying, if you are a Gentile, do not come in on the pain of death. We know that from historian Josephus. We also know that from archaeology. Um, so when Paul is thinking about the uh, middle wall of partition, that's probably what he's thinking about. And by the way, when, he, when there was rumor that he brought with him a Gentile into the temple, there was a big brouhaha. So yes, there definitely was a physical wall of partition uh, between Jews and Gentiles. And Yeshua broke that wall down. He destroyed the barrier. Now, part of then what we need to navigate carefully here is that, unfortunately, um, the majority of English translation don't handle this real well because they convey something that I don't believe is really there. So God is still un well on the throne. I don't want to imply that his word is deficient, but this is typically not handled well. Let me read to you how typically... Um, English translations or Christian translations render 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of, of hostility. Okay, that we get. By abolishing in his flesh the law, the Torah, the law of Moses with its commandments and regulations. So we get the fact that Yeshua destroyed the enmity between Jews and Gentiles. That's taught over and over and over and over again and is lived out uh, in the first century believers. However, did Yeshua, in fact, then abolish the Torah? There are several issues with that that I wanted to flesh out for you. Was there anything in the Torah itself, the five books of Moses, that put a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. Think about it. Absolutely not. Even when God commands the people of Israel to destroy the Canaanites, the, five, the seven Canaanite nations, even then the issue is not the Canaanites themselves. This, we're not talking ethnic cleansing. We're talking about spiritual cleansing. The Lord made it very abundantly, abundantly clear that the Israelites would have nothing to do with 
the heathen practices of the nations. And furthermore, those commandments applied only to the Canaanite nations upon whom God's judgment was. And you see a number of the examples of Gentiles who had been incorporated into the nation of Israel. Shavuot, of course, uh, the book of Ruth is read, a perfect example, uh, who would become in the line of Messiah. Um, and here, here is the bigger picture, folks. The Torah devotes a great deal of attention and instructs the people of Israel in no uncertain terms that they are to take care of the Gentile who lives among them. The Gerim, the alien who were living in the land along with the Israelites, the Lord uh, were considered the underdog and, and in Exodus 21, the Lord says to them, do not oppress the widow, the orphan, and the alien. And if they cry out to me, I will come after you and I will kill you. That's what God says about how the Israelites were to treat the Gentiles who lived among them. They were to be part of the community. The, the, the laws of the Torah were to protect them. They were to celebrate um, and worship God. That was with one exception. That, of course, was Passover because Passover was for those who had been circumcised, whether Jews or aliens or Gentiles. So th there was nothing in the Torah that uh, was designed to separate the people of Israel from, from non-Israelites. However, part of what you have in rabbinic tradition over a period of time is you have the so-called... Um, Uh, um, I, I just lost my, my thought for a second. What is there is the uh, fence around the Torah that the rabbis constructed and with good intention because their attitude is, if here's the Torah, I don't want to break the Torah, so I'm going to put a fence around it, which means that I first of all have to get through the fence and break those kinds of commandments before I break the commandments of the Torah. Not a bad idea. However, it's in practice became very legalistic. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this. And part of the picture was that you want to avoid ritual defilement, okay, and make sure that you don't become defiled. So if the Gentiles don't practice these things, they are ritually defiled, so don't, don't come into their household. So that's where you get the idea of the barrier. Not something that is in the Torah, not something that is in Scripture. Um, so would Yeshua abolish the Torah in order to bring about, in order to, uh, to destroy the, the wall of separation? No, absolutely not. Secondly, even more to the point, what did Yeshua say about the Torah? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not one small letter, yod, 
on the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear. So whatever it is that Paul is saying could not mean that Yeshua wanted to abolish the Torah. Then Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the Torah by this, by our faith? Not at all, or God forbid, or you got to be kidding. Rather, we uphold the Torah. And I can go on give you other examples. So my point simply is whatever Paul is saying here cannot mean that Yeshua abolished the Torah. He, he broke down the wall that exists between people. And unfortunately, that wall remains. Not because Yeshua's work was defective, but because we are defective, folks. We tend to want to rebuild walls between ourselves. If you don't agree with me on every single point, doctrinally, politically, and so on, we're going to duke it out. And let me tell you something, folks. At the Yeshuat Sion, if you want to pick a fight, there's so many different ways you can do that. <laughs> you know, you don't like the color of my hair, such as it is. You understand where I'm going with that? We build middle walls, and unfortunately, a lot of times what happens is that there's a wall between those of us who are committed to the uh, God's plan for Israel and between the rest of the body of Messiah or the church or the congregation, the capital C. Not something that we want to maintain. In fact, anything but over a number of years, God has blessed us, blessed me in particular, with a number of good relationships with fellow servants, pastors, from a, num a number of different churches. And we as a community have in, in, in endeavored to have some relationship with fellow believers who are in the church. Unfortunately, what happens a lot is, is we tend to look at, at the church and say, wow, these guys really don't get it. They, they have uh, made Yeshua into a good Norwegian, uh, you know, blonde, blue eye, auburn hair, um, and Passover has become Easter. By the way, that's what the King James, the King James in one of the places speaks about how that the apostles, uh, how that um, Herod and, and uh, Pontius Pilate were, were, this was in the middle of Easter. Well, not quite. Um, so I've heard over and over and over and over again how that, um, that the church has become paganized, has become Hellenized, and so on and so forth. Well, look, while some of that is true, first of all, there are brothers and sisters in Yeshua. And yes, there's a long, ugly history of how the church treated Jewish people over the last couple of thousand years. That, however, there were legitimate men and women of God in this institution called the church. And by the way, some of them were even Jews. Uh... Teresa, 
was Jewish, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. St. Teresa. Um, and, um, and yes, we like to be able to share our insights with fellow believers in the church, and we do from time to time. However, please hear me, folks. There's one who is the righteous judge. And that's not me, and that's not you. And if you are convinced that all the places you have been to have been defiled and corrupt, and you finally found a place that is right and proper, let me tell you something. In no time flat, you will find out something wrong. And I said that to, to one young brother who came, who had been looking, looking, looking for a couple of years. And uh, I finally looked at him one day and I said, well, I don't know, maybe I had some um, jalapeno in, in my breakfast. But I said to him, well, brother, it's quite likely that in this congregation, someone will step on your bunions. And uh, I never saw him again. So, Yeshua has made us one. But that doesn't mean that we cannot be busy and active in rebuilding the middle walls between us. And um, he made shalom. He made shalom. Shalom, by the way, isn't just peace, absence of war. It's wholeness. It's completion. It's healing, it's prosperity, it's all the good stuff God wants to give us. He wants to reconcile, meaning he wants to put an end to the hostility that exists between us and others. He draws us together. And by the way, that's the, the work of Outreach, the work of outreach isn't great marketing, you know, distilling the good news of Yeshua to four or five or ten spiritual laws and then grabbing an unsuspecting individual and uh, inserting that down their gullet. Outreach is doing the work that God does, folks. It's a process where we reach out and put our hand and simply welcome somebody to connect with the same Lord that we did. Now, Floyd, would you please come? A little show and tell here for you. Now, uh, Paul speaks about the fact that, that the Lord made us one new man. And I've heard, I've heard all kinds of theories about that. And I stand before you with a, a little degree of arrogance to tell you that I have the correct understanding of it. Uh, seriously, you know, the notion of one new man, when you think about one new man, you think that somehow God takes us in like a couple of glass rods and anneals us with fire and we become one so that Floyd and I somehow... Uh, bec become Chaid Floyd Chaim Chaim Floyd you know a, a sort of a hybrid individual 
um, I don't know, I like myself the way I am, and I like this guy the way he is. One new man simply means that here is, here is Yeshua. If you can visualize, this is Yeshua. Come closer to, to the pulpit, Floyd. Here's, here's Yeshua, and Floyd has become connected, one in, in Messiah. And I have drawn to Yeshua as well. And because of that, we're one new man. We're connected through Yeshua. We haven't become some sort of funky hybrid. Thank you, sir. Well, but, but we are connected through the bridge of Yeshua. And folks, I'll tell you something. The, the more, the longer I live, the more I see fellow believers who are divided from each other, the more I'm convinced that there's a problem not just between the two of them, but first of all, between them and God. Because unity is always an expression of spiritual maturity. And the flip side of that, this unity is always an expression of spiritual babyhood. You see that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, I want to talk to you like mature people, but you, you are babies. You're fussing with each other. You don't understand God's shalom, God's fullness, God's wholeness that he has for you. And so you determine that you're going to fuss. You don't understand God's will. You don't understand God's purposes. So you fuss. And, of course, folks, we always like to justify our feuding. We feel entitled to, our, to the sin of, of disunity. You know, he, he did such dirt to me, and I'm justified. I'm, I'm, my anger is warranted, and he will never change. He's going to be the rat that he's always been. Never mind that the Lord has a different perspective. So one new man means that somehow mysteriously God brings us together. And by the way, Israel still remains Israel and the Gentiles still remain Gentiles. In Yeshua Tzion, we have Jews and we have Gentiles. Gentiles is not a pejorative word. It's not a bad word. It just means this is who you are. You're fearfully and wonderfully made as a Gentile. Just like I'm fearfully and wonderfully made as a Jew. And together we are in him. We are identified with Yeshua. Joined together. And what's amazing is that we become joined together not just so that we have some kind of ethereal pie-in-the-sky kind of unity, you know, where we sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya. Unity, scripturally, folks, is always functional. We become joined together and we serve together. 
something happens. Verses 20, 21, and 22. Consequently, you are fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Messiah Yeshua as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple. In him, you are being built together. Uh, let me point out that in those three verses, you have three verbs, three action words. Joined or fitted, rising or growing, and, and built. Well, that's self-explanatory. All of those are in the present, which means that their action that takes place over a period of time continuously, not something that was in the past. And secondly, it happens as God does that with us together. You have a bunch of these together verbs in, in Scripture. God saves us together. God works in us together. God develops us together. And the bottom line is this. Please hear me, folks. The bottom line is that there's growth and expansion. The kingdom of God is about growth and expansion, folks. It's not about church growth or organizational growth. It's the kingdom growth. It's God's life in us has to find expression by bringing about growth, reproduction by impacting people. If that doesn't happen, there is no life in us. And the flip side of that, the positive simply is that if we, or as we are putting our noses towards the Lord and endeavoring to be faithful, He will do the work the primary work, and we will engage in it. These verbs here about God's building are in the passive voice, which means who is the one who is doing the joining together? Who is the one who is causing the growth? Who is the one who is doing the work of building? It's not you and I. It is God on an ongoing basis. And, you, you know, you can imagine that oftentimes we bring corporate values into the kingdom of God. We try to fit corporate values into the kingdom of God and it just doesn't work. God's house will be built. We at Yeshua Sion are God's family. We're God's house. We will grow according to God's plans and purposes, develop and mature further to do the work of the kingdom. Why? Not because we're cute and clever, but because God has a plan, God has the power, and he calls on us to engage and to be participants in the work of the kingdom. But he is the one who is doing the heavy lifting. The monkey, the 800-pound gorilla is not on our back to make things happen. 
But by the same token, God expects us to roll up our sleeves and work and engage in doing the work of the kingdom. It's a mystery how it all happens, how it all plays out. But the primary focus for us is the fact that God is at work. God is at work. And each and every single one of us has a part in it. If you're here and you're convinced that God has nothing for you to do, you need to have a a long chat with the Almighty, beginning with repentance, saying, God, forgive me for selling myself short. Forgive me for selling you short. Because your word says plainly and clearly over and over again, you have given me spiritual gifts, at least one of them, that needs to be invested in the growth, in the expansion of your kingdom, the growth expansion of your house. I want to obey. That's it. Nothing profound, nothing. You don't need 50,000 videos, DVDs, books to read. Just need to follow the good book and and be available to do God's work. And it happens. I'll close with this story. I want to tell you about uh, Bishop Joseph Sheroshevsky, who had become the Anglican Bishop of Shanghai, China, and was the bishop there from 1877 to 1884. Um, He did all kinds of wonderful things. He founded St. John's University in Shanghai. He also translated the New Testament into Mandarin and the entire Bible into another Chinese dialect. He was described as probably the greatest translator China had ever had. He passed away in went to be with Yeshua in 1906. You know where Joseph Sheroshevsky came to know Yeshua? In a rabbinical school. Someone had given him a Hebrew New Testament that was produced by the London Society for Ministry to Jews. And Joseph Sheroshevsky read the New Testament, and came to the conviction that Yeshua is indeed the Messiah. He was a Lithuanian Jew. He was very bright, and they wanted him to be a rabbi and ended up at at the yeshiva. And um, lo and behold, he got a redirect. The Lord knocked him off his donkey. So here is Joseph Sheroshevsky translating the New Testament in the 19th century. And at this point, there's a movement called Back to Jerusalem. Where does that come from? It comes from China. It is a commitment on the part of the believers, primarily the underground believers, to send thousands of Chinese missionaries to an an area where 90% of the unbelieving world lives in. The Hindu 
the Buddhists and the Muslims. No big deal, you know, just send people where folks do not want Yeshua. And it's their conviction that that's what God wants them to do. And they are expecting that at some point we will hear reports of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists come to know Yeshua. And I've been hearing all kinds of reports about Muslims in Iran and Saudi Arabia. Muslims having visions of Yeshua. I don't know for sure the connection there, but nonetheless, here you have a Jew who comes to know the Lord because of some Gentile believers in London. He translates the Bible into the Chinese. The Chinese at this point are facing which way? Towards Jerusalem. That is a basic principle that as the Lord brings us together, there's collaboration, there's kingdom work together as we know and understand who Yeshua is and we know who understand who we are as we allow him to knit us together to bring about that shalom and as we learn to take those first, those baby steps to serve, then bigger steps to see the kingdom of God expand. In all of that, the Lord gets the glory. Let's pray. Father God, we... Uh, we thank you that you drew us, each and every single one of us, from places of darkness. We thank you, Lord God, that you brought about your shalom, your peace, your wholeness, your healing to us. Thank you, Lord God, that you knit our hearts together with fellow believers from all kinds of backgrounds. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together into a congregational mishpacha. Thank you, Lord God, for how you are building your building here among us, not just for ourselves, but for others to come here and encounter your presence here among us. And Lord God, we simply want to say, Hineni, here we are. We want to, to do your will. We want to see your house being built, your kingdom expand, Lord God. Speak to us, Lord God, cause us to see how we need to fit, how you want us to fit, how you want to fit us into your building. Give us, Lord God, that holy chutzpah, that courage to hear and embrace your word for us, Lord. And we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.